what I've found to be the most important things are what gives us a sense of meaning. And that seems to be across the board, a core component of um, people having a positive appraisal of their life. And the interesting thing seems to be is the source of meaning doesn't seem to matter. Welcome to the Chasing Passion podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week, I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. In this podcast, I talk to individuals who are following their passion and make a living from it. I truly believe that finding your calling in life, finding the thing that lights you up, finding the thing that you're born to do i think that's extremely important to do and it's why this podcast was created in the first place i think in our everyday life there's clues being left behind we must be aware enough to notice these clues and take action on them eventually we become self-aware enough to realize that this just might be for me and all you got to do then is, is just to take the first step well i don't know about you but it's something that i'm always trying to do if you enjoy the podcast you might leave in a short review on apple podcast If a review is too much, perhaps you could leave a rating. Just giving your honest feedback, you'll be super appreciated. If you think someone might enjoy this podcast, let them know. Give it a share, it'll be extremely helpful. All that aside, this week we're joined by Danny Lennon. Danny is the founder of Sigma Nutrition and head of content creation for the company. Known for hosting the top-ranked podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio, Danny is also a respected educator in the field and he has spoken at conferences and events all over Europe, United States, and Australia. He's a bachelor's degree in biology and physical education, and also a master's degree in nutritional science. Sigma Nutrition is an extremely valuable resource for non-biased nutritional information, and the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio is exceptionally good. So if you're interested in nutrition, health, or just life in general, definitely check it out. In this podcast, we discuss what the definition of optimal health is, the ethics behind a vegan and the omnivore diet, filtering out information, along with many, many super interesting topics. Find out more about Danny and the work that he's doing by visiting the website sigmanutrition.com. You can also listen to the podcast, which is called Sigma Nutrition Radio, or give him a follow on Instagram, which is just Lennon underscore sigma. Show notes for the episode can be found on chasingpassionpodcast.com forward slash 54. And yeah, thank you so much for listening to the episode. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for asking me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So I guess the first question I have for you is, can you just provide some context about yourself, what you've done in the past, and perhaps what you're up to now, just to provide some context to listeners? Sure. So right now I own a company called Sigma Nutrition and the company, I suppose, has two elements to it. We put out online educational content around nutritional science, as well as having an online nutrition coaching service. And what I'm probably most well known for related to that is the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio, which has been going for over six years now and has been in in line with the start of the company as well. And so previously to start in Sigma, my own background was a master's degree in nutritional sciences. Previous to that, I'd actually done my undergrad in biology and physics education. 
and was a secondary school teacher here for a year in a school down in Limerick. And during that time, realized uh, this teaching thing isn't really for me. Uh, maybe I want to go and do my own thing. Um, I'm really interested in this nutritional science stuff that I'm looking at anyway. And decided to take the, the decision to quit teaching and go explore nutrition science and ended up starting the company off the back of that. And so that's how it came to be what I'm, what I'm currently doing. So day-to-day work right now for me tends to look like creating content, either podcasts, um, that includes obviously the recording, editing, and so on, a lot of time researching before each episode, and then also creating our own content, whether that's written statements that we have on the website, uh, presentations and lectures, which I'm lucky to, enough to do quite a lot of. So preparing those um, and so yeah, a lot of time reading research and then trying to translate that into something attractive looking on the internet, I guess. Yeah. Amazing. And like, were you always interested in nutrition? Like what were you like as a kid? Did you have an interest in like, you know, being healthy or like exercising nutrition, like looking at, looking after yourself? What were you like as a kid, I guess? Yeah. Well, the main driver for me was sports performance. Mm-hmm. So my main thing growing up was always sports. So I was actually, uh, I was born in London and grew up there until I was about 10. And so my main sport was just playing soccer. Um, and that's like all I did and all I really cared about. Um, and then when I moved to, to Ireland, I, was, I started getting into playing a bit of uh, Gaelic football. And so I would say from around the age of 14, 15 to about 20, that became my primary sport of interest um and i was still playing soccer at that time as well but football was the big thing i cared about um and so everything i was doing outside of that was to help me be better at that so doing extra running on my own trying to learn how to be better at, at this at this sport and then the kind of same thing happened once i went to college that i started getting interested in other sports that's where i discovered brazilian jiu-jitsu started dabbling in a few mma classes but mainly jiu-jitsu is the thing that i got super interested in and so then at about 21 stopped playing football and said okay i'm gonna go all into the jiu-jitsu mm. thing did that for a few years and then in more recent times it's been kind of powerlifting has been more of my focus so very much this kind of all in mindset uh, on a certain sport for a while and then before moving on but really that's what got me interested in nutrition and it was kind of a a, i'd say an intersection of two things it was going to college i was already interested in how can i be a better athlete but for the first time now i was learning how to read research papers or what even research papers were and so then outside of my college course i was like hey there's going to be some research now done in this area of athletic performance that may help me so i'll try and look up some of this stuff so i'd start googling around and going into pubmed and trying to find research papers on it and eventually stumbling into the area around nutrition and started finding that stuff fascinating and then pretty pretty quickly found that this had implications not just for performance but obviously translated into health and body composition and so on and so that's what really got me interested in the first and i just wanted to nerd out on those things and like I said, that's what, when I decided to leave teaching, I was like, Hey, I'm spending most of my spare time, like reading nutrition science. So mm. I may as well go and study it and doing something with it. So really, as it, as it probably is for a lot of people, it was a byproduct of really a personal drive to be better at sports. Um, and that was the initial hook. 
And then obviously it's changed over time to now seeing broader applications and being interested in things more generally and for health purposes and how that translates to others. But that was the initial start point, I guess. Yeah, wow. And you're also working as a performance nutritionist with professional uh, mixed martial artists and boxers. How did that look like for you? And how long did you spend um, in that kind of career? Yeah, so uh, around that time where I used to be training in jiu-jitsu and stuff myself, I was actually um moved to dublin at that stage mm-hmm. and a good friend of mine uh jason who is a strength and conditioning coach w- was starting to work with a lot of muay thai athletes and he mentioned that a few of them needed help with their their nutrition and making weight for some upcoming fights so i started working with a few of them and um one or two of them were big names within the Irish combat sports scene. And so off the back of that and them saying some positive things about me, more athletes got in contact. And so I started working with more and more of them. And it was an area I really enjoyed uh, working in because it you have these fine tuning of all these small little details that for most people don't matter, but for trying to make weight for a combat sport athlete is a really big deal. And it's just interesting to see how you can manipulate some of those variables. And so then fast forward after a while, um, so I worked with more of those athletes online from outside of Ireland. And it got to the point where I was working with enough of them that I, I couldn't scale that any further. So I ended up putting out more educational material on that topic through some writing and then ended up putting out a digital book and a, a system around that, that more athletes over the last few years have been able to get access to that can't directly get coaching from us. So um, that's how it came about. And I was doing that for a number of years and was lucky to work with some really, really good athletes. Uh, some of the most dedicated people you meet, guys that are competing in in Bellator and World Series of Fighting and some of these big promotions, which was really cool. Wow. And um, yeah, it was, it was just, yeah, it, it, it was great. So uh, that's how it, how, it, how it came about, I guess. Mm. And now your company, Sigma Nutrition, so you, you know, when you were teaching, you found you, you're spending majority of your time on like reading about this stuff, reading research papers, and then you're like, hmm, I'm going to start this company. So I'm, I'm just curious to know, um, how did that process look like for you? How did you um, launch Sigma Nutrition? Like what were the challenges involved with that? Just like the overall process of launching. Yeah. I'd love to say there was a big master plan that I knew exactly this is how it would turn out, but I definitely think that's not the case. And I think it actually is one of the main things I try and say to people that uh, with long-term planning, people try and uh, put too much faith in how predictive they can be of what the future will look like. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to just picking something and starting to take some action on that and being willing to change as that goes over time and then you end up somewhere which is definitely what's happened with me and so at the time of starting the the company it was okay i want to work in some degree of like nutrition consultancy and coaching um i think i have some interesting topics that i want to tell people about and one way to build my credibility or people to realize that they might be i might be someone they want to work with is by putting out content and so i was kind of lucky to just I suppose naturally or or whether I stumbled across the idea of just being able to put out content that was freely available to people for a long period of time without needing something back from it immediately. That's just something that from the start was something I knew I needed to do. And so for the first couple of years of having the Sigma Nutrition website up, you couldn't actually buy anything on the site, but there was just free content. And so 
that was the goal. It was like, I'm going to put out articles every week. I'm going to do a YouTube channel. I'm going to do a podcast. And pretty soon you realize, you know what, you can't do all those things, or at least you can't do all of those things really well to the, and the, in a way that you could, if you focused on a couple of core things. And pretty soon I found that when I started doing the podcast, number one, I really liked doing it. Mm-hmm. Two, it seemed to suit my natural skill sets. And uh, third, it was the one that started to get a bit of traction quite quickly early on. And people seemed to be really responding well to it. So then I pulled back on as doing as much writing and I stopped really doing any kind of video content to focus more on the podcast. And at that time, podcasting wasn't what it is now. This was like the start of 2014. And so by doing that consistently from that point on, by the time podcast exploded, I guess in like late 2016, early 2017, uh, the podcast was already very well established and had good listenership. So there's a large slice of luck involved. Um, and as in most things in life, I think luck probably pays a much bigger role than most people tend to admit to themselves. Uh, at least when things have gone well for them, we tend to put it down to other things that we, we do. Uh, whereas really I'm I'm more than happy to accept that most good things that have happened to me is luck. So I think that was one uh, with, with the podcast. Um, and it, yeah, it was just realizing that there are, it, it suited my skill set. And it's not to say everyone needs to do it. Some people write phenomenal blogs and are really, really good writers. And it would be a disservice if they'd start doing less of that and more podcasting because they connect with their audience through writing the same way. If you see a phenomenal YouTuber, like they putting all their energy into that can have a much bigger reach and impact than if they say, Oh, I, someone told me I need to have a podcast. And so it's realizing what mediums are out there that could potentially be used and what fits your natural skills and preferences and also how you can best uh, reach your audience. And for me that uh, I was lucky to realize that was the podcast. And so I decided to go, fully in on that and um that's that's how it kind of kicked off yeah wow amazing yeah i like what you said with luck um like but i also think like it does matter like that you know you have to like make yourself yeah you have to kind of put yourself in a lucky position what i mean with that is you have to kind of do the things that will eventually bring you luck so like you know you were already like researching this stuff you started a podcast based on your interest and then it picked up since podcasting exploded but yeah i did like your viewpoint on luck and i'm curious to know uh, what kind of advice would you give to a younger self who's just about to start this whole podcast who's about to start this whole website uh what would you tell yourself oh probably a lot of things <laughs> um I think, I think not to panic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's definitely, and and it's it would be a natural reaction for most humans uh, to to panic when we're in a mode of, look, I have no money coming in. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I want to make this thing work, but I'm not sure if it will. What will other people think of me if I try this? Uh, I've got other friends that are going and getting a career in X and they're making this amount of money now. And I'm here trying to do this weird thing. So there's a lot of those thoughts that can creep in when someone is trying to follow a a creative endeavor, uh, particularly on an entrepreneurial standpoint. So it's being able to realize that there's, there's a lot of opportunity in life to make mistakes and failures that are completely reversible. And there's a very, very small number of things that are irreversible. And sometimes we think 
that that list is a bit bigger. So we think we, if we if we fail at this thing, or if we don't get this thing right, or if I spend the next three years trying to make this thing happen and it doesn't really work out, then I'm, I've ruined my life. And it's just complete nonsense, right? There's there's like I said, there's a tiny number of things that would really be uh, irreversible and no way back from, particularly the younger someone is. But this would extend to to most ages, but I think particularly for the younger someone is, then the less they need to worry about, oh, what if this doesn't work out? Um, and so I would say to myself not to, uh, not to panic, um, to, and I think I was generally good at not panicking too much to kind of trust mm-hmm. in that process. Um, and, uh, it, it's hard to tell myself to do something different because I don't know if that would have worked out better or worse. Um, but right. Yeah. Uh, I think the only things I would tell myself wouldn't actually be on the business side. They would probably be more, um, related to like personal things. Um, which I think is probably true for most people. When we think about our younger selves, we think about, Oh, we were so worried about what these other people were thinking or we didn't act how we truly were in a certain way or we were insecure about x y and z which now kind of feels meaningless and there are the things i would i would probably say to myself that most of us would that there's um things that yeah that we worry about and that we're insecure about or that we're negative to ourselves about there are the things to really uh change uh, but on a business side maybe not too much maybe maybe get on instagram earlier or something like that but but apart from that i'm i'm happy just for reality to have played out how it did i guess yeah well with the instagram stuff now it's tiktok so i feel like tiktok's now the now's the opportunity to grab tiktok and yeah i love what you said where you know and um, trying things like let's like say for three years you do some and you know it doesn't work out and just having that fear I love what you said that because like I used to have this belief as well that you know oh I need to have a balance otherwise if I do like you know a certain thing for x amount of years it's just not going to work out but I think I think you can absolutely try to do one thing and go all in for that five years and even if it doesn't work out you still have time to do another project so I think Mm. that's a really cool uh, perspective on it yeah and I think one thing that always resonated with me I think it might have been Tim Ferriss or someone Mm. said before that one of the ways he chooses projects to work on is even if it failed from like a, an objective, like business standpoint, Mm. what skills would I learn through that process that I could use in the future? Cause in that way, then it's not a really a complete waste of time because you've benefited in some way. And it's the same thing now. If, if, if um, my business were to go under in the next week Mm. and I had to start something else from scratch, Sure, that would be bad, but there's. I wouldn't say that everything I've done to now was a waste of time because all those things and those skills and, and relationships I built during these past number of years could be used in some sort of way. And you can use that on a smaller scale of like if you're worried about use, doing some sort of project, if you would still benefit and learn some sort of skill or develop as a person some sort of way, then even if it doesn't win from a business perspective you still have gained some sort of benefit so i think that's a useful way to reframe what a waste of time is and what it isn't yeah absolutely yeah i've heard about that concept before i think it's scott adams who wrote about initially in his book i think it's like how to fail and win something like that and then i also like what scott adams mentioned with the skills so he talks about you know um instead of having like one key area that you should focus on like one skill and become the best in the world he says pick three pick 
three things that you're naturally you know curious about and that you want to excel at and then when you combine all those skills together you'll be the best in the world at doing those three things uh, yeah. what are what, what are your thoughts on that yeah, I've heard similar concepts and, mm. and I, I tend to like it. I know James Altucher calls it idea sex. He's like, <laughs> what two or three things, uh, typically like take two random things that are completely disconnected that you've an interest in mm. and what way could they be combined and what, what, what would the baby of those look like? Because that would be the thing that you would be known for then or that you have more expertise than other people who don't, can't connect those dots. And I, I think for me, over time, what I've definitely realized is it's not that I want to be uh, the best at one specific domain, say even within nutrition or the, mm-hmm. the, the most amount of knowledge on this. It's uh, how can I have a broad enough understanding of a number of different topics that they can be connected in an interesting way. Um, and Eric Weinstein has a similar concept. Uh, he's, he's, he has this line where he says something to the effect of... Um, uh, jack of all trades, master of none, but master of one trade, connector of none. And it, I thought it was like really mm, insightful like because when I think about the foremost experts in nutrition, which is still a viable way to go, like if you want to be a true world-class researcher in nutrition, you have to get into an area of research and narrow in your focus very narrowly so you can spend your whole career um, researching a specific protein or a specific type of pathway or a specific micronutrient, and you're the world expert in that area, the broader you make your interest, by nature, you have to spend less time looking at other concepts. And so you can't ever have as much knowledge about vitamin B12 as that vitamin B researcher ever will. But you have a broader uh, range that's not as deep on any one topic, but you can connect different interesting ideas. And I think that's the way that it's definitely worked out for me as a podcast host that I can talk about all these different concepts, but I don't need to be the expert on any one of those, right? My job is to talk to someone who knows more on that topic than I do Mm. and just have enough deep level knowledge that I can have a good conversation with them. So I'm not clueless going in and I learn enough that now all these different areas I'm learning about makes me essentially, I guess, more interesting to myself or hopefully to others as well that have all these different ideas I've learned, but the, uh, I don't have to go as deep as these other people. So there's those two different routes someone can go and one isn't better than the other. Some people should go that route of like going all in deep on one specific topic. Uh, but I've tried to see it like what kind of broader range can I have in a way that I can connect them and make them interesting. So it kind of reminds me of that when you bring up that idea. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that concept. It kind of reminds me of the Pareto principle where um, 20% of the results or actions produce 80% of the results. And you can apply that to nutrition like you just said. So I think, yeah, that's extremely cool. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I, I think on that, for most people, uh, they could get most of the practical benefit around nutrition from knowing like a small, tiny percentage of what we even talked about in the podcast. So. Mm. Uh, that that lines up with that for sure i think i'll come back to you on that question because i do want to know what the answer to that is but before we get there uh what are you currently curious about because i know you're curious about many different things and i'm just curious to know (laughs) i'm just curious to know uh what are you currently curious about right now uh what has piqued your interest uh nutrition wise or just more generally generally nutrition wise whatever comes to mind uh generally 
uh, I don't know if you've realized, but there's lots of weird stuff going on in the world right now. Yeah. 2020 is being quite crazy. <laughs> so uh, a lot of that has kind of occupied, uh, occupied my mind. Um, I have a friend of mine, Kirana Regan, who actually coaches for us at Sigma, who is currently going really deep on some of the stuff around existential risk. Um, and so we've had some really deep conversations about that recently. So a lot of those thoughts are on my mind, um, whether they are risks to humanity that are natural. So he will talk to me things about like solar flares, uh, for example. It could be man-made risks that we've known for a while, like nuclear war. Um, but it could also be things that are more cultural that we're now starting to see of like real risks of um, developed countries in the Western world could have civil wars over the next year. And that's like, that's not a inconceivable thing to happen when you look at the current climate. Um, and so there's all these crazy things going on. And uh, th those have been fascinating to think about. Um, I think what's going on culturally in a lot of the Western countries right now is fascinating to think about how uh, polarizing a lot of those uh, narratives tend to be and the different points on either side, but just also how people act in a certain uh, tribal manner. I think it's interesting to view, although so quite scary. So thinking about that. And then for my own kind of general reading interest area, I suppose over the last six months, I've been looking at some of the behavioral therapies and like rational emotive behavior therapy, which is fairly similar to cognitive behavioral therapy and just some of the psych uh, psychology and, and the research in that area and talking to a friend of mine, Hugh, who's a sports psychologist about some of these concepts um, and trying to understand how they may play a role for us in being just generally healthier human beings. Um, there are some of the things that come to mind. Um, and then also on a research perspective, that's non-nutrition. Uh, I'm finding a lot of the research around uh, psychedelics and, and their potential use for human health uh, interesting. Um, so there's a, some great labs like the one in Imperial College in London. They're doing a lot of research on psilocybin, for example, which is the active component in magic mushrooms um, and using that for um, treatment resistant depression, uh, the trials on smoking cessation and so on. And it's just really, really interesting just to read and look through and see the, the potential for that area. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of a variety of different things that occupy my mental space that go beyond the nutrition at the moment. Mm. And in regards to nutrition, uh, what's the what, what are you currently fascinated by or just curious to explore more? Yeah, so recently on the podcast, we've actually had a series on the ethics around our food choices. So specifically looking at veganism or omnivorism. And what are the ethical arguments on, on both sides of that? And it's the reason why I wanted to explore it is, again, from a personal perspective, it's not something I'd thought too much about before this year, that I'd always viewed my diet through the lens of nutritional science. Mm -hmm. um, so how it impacts my health, my performance, and also what I like eating, with never really thinking about more of the deeper ethical or moral questions, or when they were brought up, kind of paying lip service to them and not really thinking about them. So I decided I'm going to go and have some conversations with some moral philosophers and ethicists and activists, and what are their arguments around the ethics of what we should eat, 
And so that's been quite interesting for me. Um, and so vegan diets have been one where I've been spending more time recently to look at both the ethics piece, to look at the environmental issues and sustainability. Um, and then actually on the podcast, we've recently covered some of the nutritional and health components of it too. So that's where a lot of my time reading and writing and recording has gone uh, on a nutrition front recently. Yeah, you've done a lot of episodes in that. Like, there's multiple different parts on that issue alone. And I'm curious to know, like, what were your key takeaways from those conversations and just from your research alone? What did you learn about it mm. that you were surprised by? Maybe? Yeah, I'll first give the caveat that I, I think I'm still processing some of these arguments and thinking through them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think my food choices and my conclusions will likely change over the coming while. But for at the moment, one thing that definitely surprised me was going in, I was like, okay, I'll, when I start looking towards people who are academics in the area of ethics and moral philosophy, there will probably be some that are promoting like a vegetarian slash vegan approach as being of ethical. There are probably a number of others that will say, no, we can consume animals and it's perfectly ethical. But when I started trying to uh, track down these different academics, at least from what I could find, it seemed that there is a, a majority that would find that position of a, a vegan diet or something approaching that to be the most ethical position. Um, and given how small the number of people in the actual population that consume a vegan diet is, relative to the number of moral philosophers who would uh, lean towards that being the most ethical position, there is quite a disparity. So that was interesting to note. Um, I do think from purely a philosophical and ethical position, some of the arguments made on that side are very, very strong, or at least I don't have the mental tools to be able to accurately dispute those, I would say, in real time. Um, Certainly with someone who's who's an academic in the area that they make very compelling and solid points around the ethics um, of our food choices in favor of something that is plant-based. And so, um, and beyond that, what I've also found difficult is um, what, what is more important than considering the arguments someone else makes is if we choose to eat in a certain way um, and we believe that we eat in an ethical manner, what is our argument for what we eat being ethical? And when I started to think about my own food choices up to that point, I don't think I really had a strong argument um, as to why I ate why I ate apart from preference and taste and convenience. Mm. And that was the first thing that kind of struck me is like, yeah, like they are really the only reasons why I eat what I currently eat. And it's not to say that I, I, uh, I judge anyone that, that eats for those reasons, but that's the way I, I ate for those reasons. And it was just a realization that, hey, yeah, I actually don't have a strong um, argument on an ethical, uh, uh, from an ethical perspective as to why I do eat this way. Um, and so that's what I found very interesting. And it's certainly made me much more aware of where not only my food comes from, but what the implications of these food choices are and trying to think more deeply about what does it mean to have a, uh, to eat in an ethical way. So, like I said, there's still some things I'm trying to work out and I'm still some conversations I'm having privately with people. And 
teasing through this. Um, and that may just be the last bits of resistance that I'm, I'm trying to claw onto what I normally eat with every, uh, doing every bit of mental gymnastics that I can. Um, but it, it does feel that there's a, a, a very strong argument to be made for something closer to a, a plant-based approach to eating. And to clarify for people listening, that is not something I've ever done. I'm not, I'm not vegan. I've, I've never been vegan apart from probably three weeks of my life before. And um, I've been yet yeah, a lifelong omnivore, but, but from an ethical perspective, there are some very compelling arguments uh, around that. Um, but it, it's not clear cut in all cases, which is what our most recent podcast discussed. Yeah, I, I respect that a lot because like, you know, you you were eating as an omnivore for a lot of your time and now you're you're considering like the other kind of you're considering the facts and the ethics behind that. And I respect the fact that, you know, you're thinking about these things as well. I'm not a vegan myself, but I do I do like to consume the majority of my diet through through plants. And like you, I kinda of went vegan for like a few few months or a few weeks just to give, just to give it a go. And I'm curious to know, uh, what kind of arguments are you currently kind of pondering? Um, like, what, 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 what struck you? What, what did they, what, what was your conversation? And like, what, yeah, I guess, what are the kind of main arguments that you're thinking about? Um, mm. So I think there's a couple of strong arguments on the vegan side that I didn't immediately have a, a good answer for. So probably the most common is that that's given by Peter Singer, who's a philosopher from Australia, he wrote a book called Animal Liberation and has a utilitarian view of ethics. And his point that he makes, and this is across many others now as well, but the, probably the, the, their main argument is around the concept of unnecessary suffering, mm. that if we accept the premise that it is unethical to inflict unnecessary suffering on a sentient being uh, first if we agree yes or no if we agree yes with that then the question is well is consuming animal products leading to suffering of those animals and when you look at most of the uh, farming practices some are a lot worse than others but there's certainly some degree of suffering going on for those animals right in some cases it's very bad for some People may argue it's it's not that much, but there's still some degree of suffering. There's also an ending of their life uh, a lot earlier than it otherwise would be. So for that reason, they would define that as suffering is inflicted on that animal. And the question is, is it necessary? Well, if you accept the premise that humans can eat a, a, a vegan diet and still be healthy, then it's obviously unnecessary to consume those animal products. And by that premise, it we are inflicting unnecessary suffering with that food choice. So that that would be the kind of a, a simplistic um, representation of, of what that argument cent, uh, centers around. So idea of unnecessary suffering, and then it's really trying to ask people, well, well, what are your reasons for consuming? Um, animals and, and given all the problems that that could cause or all the suffering it could cause, what reasons do we have for eating that way? And so when I started thinking through this, I was like, realistically, it's down to I enjoy the taste of these products. It's convenient for me. Um, and it allows me to do things that, for example, easier to reach my protein targets if I like being an athlete. So it's a matter of convenience most of the time. Um, now, other people could have other explanations, which is where things start to 
there's a bit of gray here. So for example, there's cultural reasons why we may consume animal products um, in certain, um, they're used in certain religious ceremonies, for example, or uh, people may visit a family who make a big deal about preparing certain dishes that are um, an important part of their cultural heritage. And by declining to consume them, it may be cause, let's say, some degree of, of pain or anguish to their family or to the person who prepared it or it's seen as an insult. So there's all these variations of that. Um, but the, the general premise is around if you could consume a vegan diet and still be healthy and therefore it would lead to less animal suffering, then what is your rationale against that? But that's generally the question that's being posed. Mm. And then obviously there, there's a lot more discussion off the back of that. Um, hence why there's, there was all those, those hours of, of contact, but that's one of the arguments that I think is worth people grappling with. Cause even if you don't uh, ascribe to that, being able to respond to that means that you have a really sharp argument on your own behalf and you have a really good point of view. So just being able to respond to that alone and justify why you eat what you currently eat would be a worthwhile exercise to think through. Um, so yeah, that, that would be probably the, one of the main arguments I think is quite strong. Hmm. And I'm curious to know, do you think like there's a there's a way to, you know, for example, in the US, I think there's an overpopulation elk. Um, so, for example, what if people could hunt elk instead of, you know, killing cows or whatever for for meat consumption? Like, does that kind of does that kind of play a role? Um, or like what mm. about the, the like Joe Salton thing? He talks about um, farming in a way that's efficient. So, for example, like, yes, the food produce might cost a lot more money. But it's produced in a ethical manner. It's produced when the when the, when the animals are you know grazing properly instead of being stuck in a cage. Like there's like these kind of factors too. So I'm just curious to know what are your thoughts on on that. Yes. So for, these are points that that I, I raised in those series because I, I find some of them interesting as well. Mm. Um, I do think there's probably caveats that many vegans would accept. So for example one that I talked with uh, Professor Andrew Chignall about is, well, what about the example of roadkill, right? This is an animal that's already been killed. Mm. There was no intent to kill the animal. And so would it be okay for someone to eat that flesh? And you could probably make a case that, yeah, that, that would probably be fine, right? No one tried to kill it. Um, the, the animal was already dead. You're not causing any uh, extra suffering. So you could probably make some case uh, around that. Um, I think also conservation, like you mentioned, is probably worthwhile, that we can see clear downsides to overpopulations of certain animals in certain areas. They can cause devastation to local farms, even into towns nearby. They can uh, disrupt the natural uh, environment of certain animals uh, uh, that they may feed on, for example. Um, so there's all these conservation issues that maybe you could make a good point for for hunting but the from a practical perspective uh one of the things that um alex o'connor who I was talking to pulled it back to is even if we were to accept those prem premises how many people that are eating an omnivorous diet right now are justifying it be because of those like how many are going out and saying well i eat an omnivorous omnivorous diet because i only go and hunt wild elk right or i only eat roadkill it's like no one is doing that so they're interesting philosophical questions but maybe not pragmatically interesting for everyone who's considering their own food choices unless that's what you go and decide to do and i think that would also be the 
the current vegan perspective on some of Joel Salatin's stuff. So um, I had Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers on the podcast to talk about regenerative farming. And they're very much about, we can have this sustainable method of producing animal food and animal agriculture. That's good for the soil. That's good um, for, for uh, people as well. And, and for farmers and doesn't cause some of the devastation and suffering that more wide scale animal agriculture causes. And then I think the big question mark and and uh, rebuttal a lot of the vegans would have to it as well how scalable is this is this scalable to the point where we could be producing enough that's what's currently produced and then second to that is it also necessarily better than what we could do if it, if it was just uh regenerative agriculture but focused on plants so we don't use grazing cattle but we find better methods of producing plants. So rather than just like large scale cropping in these vast areas, we have something that's uh, better for the environment. So there's points on both sides. And I, I think some of those exceptions that you bring up are actually worthwhile. And I, I, I mentioned the same ones because they're interesting to think through, but at a certain point we have to distinguish which ones are philosophically, philosophically interesting and which ones are relevant to us because i know personally for me uh eating uh when i was when, I, when i'm eating an omnivorous diet uh using the conservation or roadkill argument can't justify my food choices because it doesn't apply to me um and that's the same thing as, as why within that series, I tried to frame it as for someone in my position, so someone in the Western world with an understanding of how to set up a diet, a vegan diet that would be would avoid nutrient deficiencies, let's say. I have the resources to be able to go and buy any of these foods I need to, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not food insecure um, as many places in the developing world are. So I have the essentially the, the privilege to be able to make some of these decisions. Um, that's a different context uh, than the ethics around someone in another part of the world making this decision. Um, and in our most recent podcast, we mentioned some of those. For example, um, in developing countries, one of the biggest problems for many decades has been childhood stunting. So this lower uh, growth rate of children through a lack of access to calories and high quality protein. And one of the most profound things to reduce those levels of stunting has been countries where there's been increased access to animal protein. And so you see that dramatically reduces these rates. There's been a big shift and improvement in stunting rates over the years because of this. And to, to say it's unethical then, for us to be able to have mm. animal foods for these kids doesn't make sense, but it also doesn't relate to my personal choices. So there's two different ethical debates going on. What is ethical for, and again, maybe an ethicist would disagree with me that there's either something is either moral or it's not that that's a fair argument too. But for me, I think I'm trying to stick to what it, what choices do I need to consider uh, versus I think there's many contexts where animal produce can have a benefit. So for example, against childhood stunting or for areas where people are uh, malnourished and the access to calories and protein and other micronutrients becomes easier through con consumption of animal produce or where people's whole livelihoods in some of these developing areas has been through uh, breeding 
um, grazing animals like cattle, for example, or certain tribes in Africa where 70% of their diet is uh, milk and, and cheese and meat. So, and, and then there's all these cultural and religious reasons that are tied into that. And so that's why I wanted to keep my focus specifically on me or people in a similar context to me, as opposed to broadly a, a bigger question of morality. Wow, yeah, there's there's a lot to think about there, um, for sure. Um, and you know, when it comes to like the vegan diet, is it sustainable? Like, no, not 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 that it's sustainable, but um, is it actually healthy to be on a vegan diet? And um, if and if people choose to be on a vegan diet, what should they look out for, in your personal opinion? Yeah, so it seems quite clear that it is possible to be healthy on a vegan diet, and I think I have most confidence in that in adults. I think. I would be a bit more conservative about making as strong a claims as some others about the healthfulness of that for, let's say, a, a baby or a toddler, for example. I think there's some caveats that we can revisit if you'd like. Uh, but it definitely seems that it's, um, it, it's quite clearly possible for someone to be healthy in a vegan diet. And in fact, a lot of people see improvements in their health because they are now consuming more fruits and vegetables. They're now consuming more fiber uh, consuming more polyphenols and antioxidants, things that we always try and promote, but very few people actually eat in a manner that does that. Now suddenly they switch to a vegan diet and they're doing all these beneficial things. So I think there's lots of benefits for people to consume a vegan diet, but it's mainly more about what they're including rather than what they're excluding um, most of the time, I would say. Now there's some things that they're excluding, for example, um, that being on a vegan diet, by default is going to mean you're going to be on a lower saturated fat intake. So that may benefit some people as well. So it's definitely possible to be healthy. Some people improve their health. If people are considering going on a vegan diet, I want to make sure that they don't have some of the nutrient deficiencies they may have heard about or want to make sure they do it in the best way. Uh, a few of the things that I would first recommend is one, again, the same rules about overall food quality and the source of our food still applies. So simply going on a vegan diet doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a healthy diet if you just decide to eat all junk foods, but just vegan versions of it. Mm. So eating vegan pizza and vegan ice cream all day doesn't necessarily become a healthy diet. So that should be pretty obvious, hopefully, to most people. In terms of the nutrients, the most obvious one that pretty much everyone will hear is vitamin B12. Pretty much straightforward answer just to go supplement with b12 um it's very easy to go and find um it's not expensive and so just take a vitamin b12 supplement because you can't get that from plant products and um, some of the other nutrients that may be worth considering is calcium tends to be one a lot of people in the average in the general population get calcium from dairy products. So if they're now switching over, they may have a decreased amount of calcium. Now you can get that from plant sources. Typically, these are like green leafy vegetables, kale, pak choy, green beans, things like that. Um, so if people aren't consuming a lot of those, they may need to be a bit more wary of it. Um, now, thankfully, some of the plant milk alternatives that are now like almond milk or oat milk tend to be fortified. Some are not. So it's something for people to be wary of. Check that 
is it fortified with certain nutrients? Some will have added calcium and adamant B vitamins and so on. So they can look out for those. Um, same thing if they're consuming breads or breakfast cereals, a lot of those tend to be fortified with certain nutrients. Whereas if they're not consuming any of those, they may need to be more wary about getting plenty of whole food calcium sources. Uh, the other two that are probably noteworthy are zinc and iron. So the Institute of Medicine recommends that vegans aim to consume about 50% more iron and zinc than non-vegans. And this is just because of the bioavailability of those minerals um, in, a, in a vegan diet. Now, there is the potential, if we get to some of the details, there's potential for people on a lower zinc intake to be able to account for that and essentially lead to less zinc loss. So they're not at disadvantage. But in general, I think it is worth paying attention to making sure they're getting decent sources of both, uh, both of those within the diet. Uh, they may not need to supplement if they're getting enough from their diet. So a wide variety of plants um, and uh, keeping to, again, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, all that type of stuff, getting a good variety of those. And they probably should be fine if they, if they find they have low iron status, for example, and they're diagnosed by their doctor, they may be recommended to take a supplement, but in general, they can probably get it from the diet. So they're the main ones to be wary of. Um, from a general health perspective, and then there's others for for athletes to consider, but uh, they'd be they'd be the main few I would look at. Hmm. And on the topic of general health, um, how would you define being optimally healthy? And um, what are the areas that people should focus on? I know you mentioned before physical, psychological, and I think it's contentness. Um, I'm just curious to know, like, what what's your perspective on being the optimal human being in terms of health? Yeah. Uh, so this is a, a huge topic. And like you say, I've, I've written and presented before on this idea of widening our view of what being healthy is. And most often when you say that phrase to someone, the, the immediate answer is to think about physical health, right? So uh, number one, not only um, people would say someone is free of disease, but they would say that you have like blood, good blood sugar and you don't have high cholesterol, or they think of all these things that relate to our biological, physical state. Um, thankfully now more attention is being paid to like psychological uh, and mental health. And there's lots of components that relate to those. Um, and in, in many ways, they're not only just as important, but probably more important for our own appraisal of, of life. Um, and it's, because you can see people who are physically healthy who wouldn't appraise their life in a positive way, right? They either aren't enjoying it, they don't like their life, or they feel some degree of suffering um, and so on. Whereas you can have, on the flip side, someone who may not have optimal physical health, as, as we may define it, but if they are uh, psychologically really well-adjusted and content and uh, functioning well, then they will probably appraise their life in a very positive manner and report being happy or the sense of contentedness or sense of meaning. And those are the things I tend to think are more important to place focus on. And it's not doing one at the expense of the other. It's realizing that both of those things matter and that there are some trade-offs. So for example, some people find a lot of meaning in changing their body composition. The most extreme example being take a bodybuilder, right? They dedicate their lives towards this thing. But there's a trap of it. You can go 
if you go so focused that you start doing things that take away from other beneficial areas of your life, then can we really say you're truly healthy, right? And in fact, the interesting thing was as you manipulate your body composition to an extreme level, like a bodybuilder, when they're in their best shape, so when they're their leanest, they're physically unhealthy, right? If you were to take a blood test, you'd immediately see that they're not healthy at that very time point. But at at an overall level, I, I do think that for me, more of my focus around what being healthy is in addition to the obvious things like just trying to be generally healthy so like free of disease and and hopefully able to function and move around well and not have uh, lots of pain would be um what, what i've found to be the most important things are what gives us a sense of meaning and that seems to be across the board a core component of um, people having a positive appraisal of their life. And the interesting thing seems to be is the source of meaning doesn't seem to matter. And that's quite freeing for me is that there's not this one thing someone needs to do. You don't need to copy what someone else does in their life. You don't need to aspire to spend your time doing these other things. In fact, you could dedicate your life to doing something that other people see no point in or have no interest in, or find no meaning in. As long as you derive meaning from that thing, then spending more of your time doing that than doing other things will be beneficial. And that sounds quite simplistic, but it's not very easy to do. And it's something I'm still trying to find. Uh, and it's still some a question around what gives us meaning is something I'm still fascinated by and still trying to work out. And I'm not sure I have a that completely answered for myself yet, but I think I know what it's not, and it's not many of the uh, superficial things that we first think it might be. Um, and I think a strong part of it is coming down to some form of human connection, some form of community, which is obviously related to that, and then some aspect of doing something that is for the benefit of more than just ourselves. Mm. And no matter what type of meaning, when I, when you think of the people who you think, yeah, they, they're leaving, living in a very meaningful way, or they derive a lot of meaning from their life. It tends to be across the board. Those things they've ticked off. They're doing something that benefits others uh, they tend to have a community aspect to their life and they tend to have good connectedness with other human beings. And when those are not in place tends to be where we, we kind of feel at a loss or a loss of meaning. And that certainly feel in my life, the times that I've felt the, the, the times where I don't have meaning or this existential crisis or being hopeless is when those things weren't there. It, it wasn't the times where I had the least amount of money or it wasn't at least it wasn't the times where I had the least amount of attention on my business. Like there was times when I had none of that, and I was better than times when I had lots of that. So um, those are realizations that I think I've made and still trying to work through, and, and still trying to shoot for, to, and still trying to find th- those types of meaning. Um, but to me, that and and again, we're kind of getting at a meta level from what was probably more a simple question. But I think without that. Um, 
I, I would find it hard to call myself a healthy human if I was physically healthy, but a complete loss for any of those things. Wow. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think it's such a, it's a, yeah, it's, I love what you brought up there where, you know, having relationships, having a sense of community and having meaning. And of course, like everybody has a different meaning in their life. Like there's, there's not just one thing. And I think Victor Frankl's book, um, Man's Search for Meaning is a good one to read if you're interested in that. But, um, I think, I think, um, like somebody said this before, I think Tony Robbins said progress equals happiness. And I could nearly say progress equals meaning. So as long as you have a goal in mind, as long as you have, you know, something you're aiming towards and you're making progress on every single day, um, I feel like that's kind of meaning in a way as well. But I'm not I'm not really sure. I'm I'm the same as you. Mm. I'm still working on my definition of, you know, what, what is meaningful in my life. But yeah, I think I'm the same as you in that regard. I'm happiest or I'm you know, I'm I feel healthy when I've human connection around me when i have friends family and um, community and when i'm just making progress towards stuff but yeah it's a it's a deep deep question yeah. i think um <laughs> yeah it, it's yeah i mean if you look at any of the uh existentialists um and philosophers in existentialism like the idea around meaning is that we we derive meaning from things ourselves it's not prescribed to us before we are born we, we as humans um are born and we assign meaning to what we want essentially and um there are probably some schools of thought that will dispute that and i i think um but but i do think we have there is no one thing that gives us meaning it's meaning is individual to us but i think there's common characteristics that tend to uh, that that meaning tends to emerge from and there was those things that we we just mentioned that it, it has to be in some way for the benefit of a of a larger group i think in some way um or that's that my, my current thinking leads me to conclude that at least hmm. right and on that topic so we we know meaning is important um but it just in regards to like you know action in regards to like what people should do every single day uh, what are the key actions people should take? I know for me, I kind of divide it into my morning routine and evening routine, and I kind of include all the things that are important to me within those routines. So I get everything done that I need. So exercise, meditation, eating well, um, managing stress levels, you know, relaxation, all these things. So I'm curious to know um, what's like, what are the key actions that people should do every day to, you know, be healthy? Mm. Um. Well, at at the interesting thing about being healthy is it does come down to relatively simple things that people have probably heard before, yeah. but we find difficult to consistently do. Mm. So I do think some degree of exercise, or I would even say just like physical activity, like as much as going for a walk is particularly important. Um, and I think even walking itself can almost be seen as something distinct uh, from the exercise we do because there are other benefits i think that just getting outside and being able to the psychological benefit that i at least find from going from a walk outside is on top of the benefit of just being physically active and moving so i think getting out and walking and doing some sort of physical activity um, and, and whether, whether that's like proper exercise that doesn't have to be every day that could be a few times a week but i would say being active in some way every day. So walking as, as much as is practical for someone, I think, uh, sleep. And again, 
how this applies to each person is going to be different and the their own context of their life, their work schedules, the constraints they have, the presence of a, a newborn baby or not, or if someone's a college student is going to be very different. But I think generally trying to have a regular sleep and wake time that is consistent day to day, that you're getting enough sleep and you're having regular sleep and wake times is profoundly important. Um, I think getting some daylight early in the day. So in the morning, getting outside even for 15 minutes to get daylight into your eyes is incredibly important. And this relates to your circadian rhythms, which we could talk about. Um, I think from more of the um, psychological component that we mentioned, I think trying to um, build into your routine uh some of those things we talked about of connecting with people and doing things for other people, we can realize from an intellectual level that they're important and we can say, we're going to try and do more of them, but it's very easy to let those slide unless we actually plan them into our normal schedule. So having a certain time of the day where you say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to text my mother and just say, I hope you're having a nice day or something like that, or I'm going to ring someone I haven't talked to in a while. Right. Um, people will be surprised that, just ringing someone or texting someone that they haven't talked to in a while and getting and organizing a conversation, how much that could do for them. Um, and you can even do this ahead of time. So, okay, this next week coming up for all the people that don't live near me, um, let me see, can I, I'll go and message them all now and see if there's a different time I can organize a zoom call with them. And I'm going to just like organize a 30 minute chat with someone or whatever it is. Um, you can do that. It could be something as just messaging someone to say you're you're grateful for something that it did. Um, but thinking about, okay, each day, can I do something that is for no other reason than to just let someone know I was thinking about them in some way? I think that be, can be quite important. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that trying to do something for the sake of uh, being nice to someone else gives us this side effect of, doing something for us. So it's like almost this conundrum. It's impossible to do a selfless thing because we as humans derive benefit from doing things that benefit others. Um, so I think that's important. Um, and if they're doing those things like sleeping, being active, um, presuming that their overall diet is generally healthy and they're trying to connect with other people, I think you're a long way of, uh, of the way there. Um, um, at least for day-to-day -day actions and routines someone could do. Um, I think doing those alone, there's plenty to, like doing those consistently is where I put my focus as opposed to adding another 10 things to that list. Mm. Yeah, I think the whole relationships aspect of that is something that people don't really talk about or consider, but I think it's extremely important because as humans, mm. we're, we're, we're social creatures. We need we need people and i feel like in this day and age you know there's instagram there's social media there's all these things and yeah we're connected but we're not really because like we're not really seeing people face to face anymore not as often especially during coronavirus mm. um but that's yeah i think i think what you said there is extremely important to 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 realize mm. yeah and i think the uh the virus has kind of shown a lot of people that yes yeah. when it's taken away from you how important it is and you, you see how good people became at like okay i'm gonna start organizing zooms like every week with this group of friends or my family at this time and um there's lessons to be learned that as things start opening back and and at, when things eventually do get back to normal you can still use those lessons because there's still going to be, be people that you haven't 
that you don't live near or that live on the other side of the world or that's easy that we don't make use of our ability to interact with them um or or we don't tell our parents oh, i've really missed seeing you it's been however many months that but we can say now because it's so obvious so i think there's lessons there that i think the the restrictions from the virus have, have shown a lot of us yeah absolutely and just a sense of gratitude because i remember like when i went for a walk outside and it was sunny um i was like wow thank god i get to go outside and just experience all this or when I saw my friends for the first time in a while, I was like, oh, Jesus, this is the best thing ever. Um, mm. And you talked about circadian rhythms as well. And I'm very curious to ask you about that. So, you know, there's the whole topic of um, time-restricted eating. Then you said, you know, getting sunlight early early on in the day and just stuff like that. So I'm curious to know, like, what's your thoughts on optimizing the circadian rhythm and what are you currently exploring in that area? Sure. So maybe just for people listening that probably the simple way to think about our circadian rhythms is there's different biological processes that happen within the body that run on about a 24 hour time frame. Mm-hmm. But we don't only just have these internal essentially circadian clocks within the body that help run these. Um, but there's an influence or an our environment of setting that timer to precisely 24 hours, so to speak. So we use cues like light and dark to essentially tell us when it's daylight and when it's nighttime. So we know that 24 hour rhythm of our solar day so that we can have processes running at the time they should and not when we don't want them to run. So with that, it gives us this, uh, the importance of having exposure to light and dark at times where we want to and the most obvious example where this is um, pushed against is when someone does shift work and does a night shift because they have it completely flipped around now they have darkness during the day and artificial light all throughout the night as they're working and so this causes a circadian mismatch or circadian misalignment and this can then lead to various different problems with these different processes that run in the body, which is why people who are long-time shift workers have uh, associations with higher risk of certain chronic diseases, let's say. Um, And it can cause problems in the more acute term as well of how it affects blood sugar or food choices or um, our ability to sleep and so on. So where nutrition comes in is now there's been a focus on, well, does the timing of when we have our food also have an impact on these circadian rhythms? And is there a best time to eat for that reason? And the Cliff Notes version is that it's better to match up our food intake with daytime slash time where we get exposure to light. And then when it's dark out is when we should be resting, sleeping, and fasting. And if we think of this from the lens of evolutionary biology, this is essentially how we would have evolved, that when it gets dark, we would tend to see an increase in this hormone melatonin, which helps us start to that, that process to fall asleep. And we would be sleeping once it's dark because we can't do anything else. We're already feeling naturally more tired, and people would be sleeping during that nighttime period. And we would be consuming food and going and getting food and being active during daylight hours. And so thinking of that as a general heuristic probably makes some sense as to why you wouldn't want to be eating, let's say, during biological night. 
And we have examples of this where someone could have the exact same meal during the middle of the night versus in the middle of the day and how we metabolize that meal is different. So someone's blood sugar will go higher and stay higher for longer if they eat that meal during the night versus the exact same meal earlier in the day for the exact same person. So we see these differences based on circadian rhythms. And so there seems to be a benefit to, again, avoiding eating during the night. And then where time-restricted feeding comes in is this is the idea of having our eating done within a certain window of time. So research tends to be an eight to 12 hour feeding window. So this would mean either you eat within this eight hour window and then fast for 16 hours, or you could eat within a 12 hour window and fast for 12. And, but essentially having a start time and a cutoff time for our food intake, as opposed to what's common is where we eat as soon as we get up in the morning and we could be eating something right before bed. So some people could have a 15, 16, 17 hour eating window. And there seems to be a benefits for a lot of the people in the general population to have a restricted feeding window. Um, what the exact number should be is we still really don't know based on research. Like I said, most commonly it's somewhere between eight to 12 hours, probably more benefits seen from eight rather than 12. But again, it depends on the person and what the goal is. So with that of that feeding window, you tend to see a reduction in calorie intake, which again, for people who are overweight tends to lead to weight loss. And with those, you also tend to see improvements in things like blood sugar, um, and some other glycemic markers like insulin, let's say. So there are some benefits to doing that. How much of that is down to purely the feeding window versus some of the behavioral aspect? For example, if you now have a cutoff time of your final meal has to be 7 p.m., now you're not going to be snacking on foods in the evening. So hence why you might reduce your food intake and hence why that may play a role. But there does seem to be a benefit uh, pretty consistently for some of the glycemic markers. So in other words, our glycemic control, our blood sugar control. So for people who are more wary of that, so maybe someone has prediabetes, maybe have type 2 diabetes, there may be a benefit to having a restricted feeding window and not having at least large meals uh, late into the evening. Um, that seems to be, a, a, I would say, a pretty decent heuristic for people to consider right now. Yeah, no, I think I think the whole time restricted eating is really, really interesting. I initially found out about it through Rhonda Patrick when she was on the Joe Rogan podcast. And ever since then, I was like, holy crap, I need to get on this um, 16, 8 hour fast, whatever. But it's sometimes difficult to do. Sometimes you just feel hungry, you know, like past your window. And I'm curious to know, is it okay to eat, you know, once in a while, you know, past your eating window? Or should you just avoid that completely? Yeah, I'm, I think having an arbitrary cutoff time and thinking of that as a very strict, rigid rule 100% of the time is just unuseful. Um, like there is no research paper you're going to find that says um, eating within an eight-hour window is fine, but if you eat five minutes after that, it's now problematic, right? Or if you do this most of the time and then one day every couple of weeks you have a meal later than normal that you're somehow your health is going to deteriorate just doesn't make any sense to me i think most nutrition rules tend to be the case where um generally being more flexible with how they're applied and doing and thinking about what am i doing on average most of the time that's what counts as opposed to 
having very strict arbitrary rules that you must stick to 100% of the time. And so, yeah, I think there's there's very little I, I could... Uh, there, there's no real case to be made to saying someone, yeah, you're doing a major disservice to your health if on one certain day you eat a bit later than you otherwise would or if you're feeling particularly hungry on a certain day that you can't go and have some sort of meal and um, particularly and there's ways you could you could mitigate the downsides of having a late meal before bed if it's a high protein meal with that's low in carbohydrate and low in fat that tends to probably come with very little downsides um in that your metabolism of dietary fat and carbohydrates tend to be more screwed late at night whereas that doesn't seem to be the case with protein so you could make a case that yeah you could still have a high protein meal and it wouldn't really have the same detriments and so being more flexible with that i think is worthwhile considering and also realizing there are reasons we eat beyond uh, the physiological impact of eating in fact the benefits we get from eating in social occasions for example if I said to you, you can't ever eat after 7 p.m. ever again or 8 p.m., that would be pointless because look at all the negatives that would cause our lives. We could now never, ever go out for a meal in a restaurant with friends where we're, oh, yeah, I'll meet you there at 8 o'clock. But now suddenly you're going to go there and not eat. That doesn't make any sense. And it certainly it takes away something beneficial for you, not only psychologically, but those things have real benefits for our overall health, which is what we talked about earlier. Like these bonding moments with friends and family, sharing in an experience of enjoying a meal, the relaxation that comes from that, the enjoyment and all those things. So we don't dismiss those because of this one area of nutrition science. That's kind of interesting. So uh, that's a long way of answer. Say, yeah, I, I think you could probably eat past a certain window and be perfectly fine yes um no and we talked about the Pareto principle earlier on the podcast and we talked about you know uh, what 20 percent of the actions produce 80 percent of results so i'm curious to know what 20 percent of you know things should we consider in terms of nutrition to produce most of the results so i guess what are the key kind of things that we should focus on when it comes to nutrition yeah i, I think Probably the main two things that people hear about and tend to, for some reason, think it's either or is the quality of your food intake or the composition of what your diet is made up of, and then the quantity or the amount of calories that your diet makes up. And really, both of those matter. And those are the things that we can, you can probably get the the vast majority of health benefit, definitely. Um for just the person in the general population will be derived from having a diet that's an appropriate amount of overall calories and that the majority of it comes from what most people would think of as healthy foods or whole foods right so if most if you're including plenty of fruits and vegetables you choose whole grains rather than refined grains you have some maybe beans and chickpeas or uh, nuts and seeds you have some uh, yogurts, uh, you have some lean meat rather than fatty cuts of meat, like all the things that people typically hear about of what are better food choices and not going for lots of ultra processed foods. You can still have them, but just in a minority of your intake. So keeping it relatively uh, to, to a small percentage of your overall diet, most of your diet just coming from these healthy foods. And then whatever you do consume, 
keeping that within an appropriate amount of calories. And that doesn't mean you have to count calories. You don't need to track anything. It just means that if your normal intake means that you are gaining weight over time, um, and specifically if you're gaining uh, body fat over time and that you don't want to do that, then you're probably just consuming more calories than your current activity levels and your personal energy expenditure demands. And so making some sort of modifications to your intake that would reduce your overall intake. Again, you don't need to track. You could change from having two snacks today to one. You could make smaller portion sizes. You could reduce your use of certain calorie-dense foods for others. So for example, let's say you're, you usually have a snack of some yogurt with some uh, nut butter, use some almond butter or peanut butter or something swapping some of that peanut butter instead for a handful of berries. Now you still have the same volume of food in your bowl, but now you've probably reduced your calorie intake, but you're not counting calories per se. So just making sure that your overall energy intake is appropriate for whatever your goal is. So if your goal is to maintain your current weight, then just make sure you're not gaining uh, body fat over time. If someone actively wants to diet, then they may need to place some more restrictions in place to make sure they're essentially under eating um, so their calorie intake is lower for a certain period of time. And that's a other conversation, but just to be generally healthy, overall decent quality food, the majority of time don't overly stress about having to ban any foods or never have a certain food ever again. You can still include them, but just make sure you're aware of the portion size that you're including or how frequently you can uh, include it so that your overall energy intake on average is appropriate to you and your goals hmm. yeah that makes sense nice and simple i like it um and then when it comes to studying nutrition um because you've obviously done a lot of studying on nutrition i'm curious to know if somebody wants to get into nutrition if somebody wants to pursue a master's degree in nutrition whatever what advice would you give to such an individual who just wants to you know pursue nutrition has an interest in it but has no idea where to start what would you advise someone yeah the first thing is to think through a few questions um what is your goal of doing a course in nutrition like do you want this to be a career? If so, do you plan on just working for yourself as a nutritionist? Do you want to be a dietitian that works in the hospital? Do you want to work in sports nutrition in an organization or with a team in elite sport? Um, all these questions will have very different answers for what you need to pursue. So for example, if you want to be a dietitian to work in a hospital setting and do clinical nutrition, you need to get a degree in dietetics. There's no other way around that. So you need to go and find a university that you can enroll in a dietetics program. If you want to be a um, nutritionist, but just work for yourself and do nutrition consultancy, then you actually have a lot more options open. You may not necessarily need to go and get a university degree. Um, and that's not to say there's not benefits to doing that. There's a lot of benefits that you will learn from doing a four-year degree or doing a master's, et cetera. Some of those include, um, some people may say that as a credibility thing, if you have a, a certain degree or if you have a master's, uh, just studying for that length of time will mean that you're at a, a certain standard that you might not get if you do a shorter online course, let's say. But there's also other considerations like the cost of that and the time and energy you could spend in other areas. So depends on what the end goal is. Um, and then the other example I gave, if someone wants to work in elite sport, let's say 
um, my dream is to work with a, a premiership soccer team or I want to work with Leinster rugby or I want to work in a top level team or with an Olympic um, set of athletes, right? Then for that, they're probably going to need, again, a minimum of a, a degree from a university, maybe even a master's. They're going to have to register with certain sports nutrition organizations and probably going to benefit from doing specific sports nutrition degrees. So it all depends on what their end goal is. And so I would get people to think through that very clearly first. And once they realize that, then you can work back and decide what type of course or qualification you want or need. Um, and if it's for someone's own interest, then there's a lot of other op options open apart from that. Hmm. And there's a lot of information out there in terms of nutrition, and you're a credible resource for many, many people. I'm curious to know, where do you go for information? And I guess another question is, um, what was the other question? Um, how do you actually know if information is, that the information you're reading is true? So how do you, how do you defer, you know, facts from just biased information? Because I think that's a big part of um, nutrition, just understanding what's, what's bullshit in a way and what's actually true. So I'm curious to know, like, yeah. what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So to address the second part of that question first, that's probably the most difficult thing to do for anyone. And I include people who are, who have degrees in nutrition or dietitians or qualified trying to, when, when someone makes a claim, um, trying to discern the accuracy of that statement is a skill in itself. And critical appraisal skills are something that take a long time to develop and is one of the reasons why learning about research and how research is done or what a research paper looks like and what it involves or how people came to certain re results or and how to read a research paper is something that there's a lot of value to be gained because now you have this ability to critically appraise people who make a claim about nutrition, right? You go, then go and say, okay, what sources are they citing? What research are they pointing to? If they can't point to any research, then that immediately is a red flag. If they do point to research, then you can go and look at, okay, what are these studies? Are they actually saying what this person is saying? Now, that of course takes a, a large degree of competence in the area or some degree of skill and, and practice to be able to get better at, at reading research and so on and may not be the route that a lot of people want to go down so for a lot of people there instead of doing that the their option will be well how do i find credible people that i can trust i'm just going to have to at least place some faith that they're accurately representing this position now there's obviously these can't be universal rules but in general, the people who are more credible, you tend to find, don't make um, lots of absolute statements of this is the best diet, this is the one diet you need to follow, um, everything you've been told about nutrition is wrong, and this is the new science of this, or um, any of these types of lines tend to be red flags for someone who is like a kind of guru type figure who's trying to push a specific ideology um and similarly if you find diet communities or groups of people talking about nutrition in a way that is similar to a cult or a religion that is a big red flag and it's surprisingly common to see that if you look around uh, people talking about nutrition online so 
but it can be very confusing. And I'm not sure I have a great answer for how people can immediately spot this stuff. Um, it's very, very difficult and it's very easy to believe people are more credible than they actually are. So, um, for, for people who are going to be practitioners and really want to go in depth, the answer would be focus on critical appraisal skills. And, and this is one project this year that we're actually focusing on at Sigma where myself and, and Alan are planning on releasing something that will essentially help people to be able to read research better, filter through research better and improve critical appraisal skills so that they now have the ability to go and do this stuff for themselves as opposed to going from, okay, I'm not going to trust this guru, but now I'm going to have to go and trust everything Danny says or everything Alan says, instead giving those, those firsthand skills. So that would be the answer for like practitioners. For the average person, it's, it's really, really difficult. So I think you got to just go on that general sense of what is seems sensible versus what seems like over-the-top anti-convention for the sake of it being anti-convention, the one solution type answer is probably not where you want to go um so can someone be more uh, is someone backing up what they're saying with some degree of evidence and there does some to be some degree of agreement across many different scientific practitioners that yeah this is a reasonable position to hold mm. um that would be where i'd start and then in terms of like credible resources to go to uh who would you advise or what kind of resources would you point to Maybe people, websites, um, books. Yeah, so for depend what people listening are, are interested in. I'd say very few. Maybe you have the interest of of mine to go and read research papers. So uh, I'll leave that aside. I think um, obviously the stuff we have at Sigma. I'll be biased and say we have some stuff there they might like. I think if people are interested in actual nutritional science and learning about studies and what's in studies, then um, our research communication officer, Alan Flanagan, is great. Um, he is does really good stuff on Instagram as well. He is um, the nutritional advocate on Instagram, um, and he does a great job of breaking down nutritional science there. Um, I think... Uh, if people are looking for a general book around some nutritional science concepts, uh, but that's also very readable and accessible, Stefan Guiana has a great book called The Hungry Brain. If they're interested in why we eat and how we're primed to overeat sometimes, that's very good. Um, I think if people are looking for practical stuff of putting together healthy meals, uh, then my friend Daniel Davey, has lots of great stuff again on his Instagram. Uh, I think it's just Davy Nutrition is his handle. So just does a great job of putting out like healthy recipes that are very easy to to put out. Um, and yeah, I think those would be some 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 good options uh, on a nutrition s- standpoint. And yeah, I'm I'm not too good at following a lot of stuff myself i tend to just <laughs> be uh looking at other stuff so I th- yeah i think there's plenty there on the nutrition side but uh there's probably just lots that i'm missing that are, that are not coming to mind at the moment um oh one more i'll say for people who are more focused on nutrition from a body composition perspective um then eric helms has a set of books the muscle and strength pyramids uh which are good for a more body composition focused idea so uh there'd be a few sources to go to Mm. 
but absolutely 100% Sigma Nutrition. Like that, that the podcast alone is incredible, incredible resource. Um, and like everything we talked about now is discussed deeply in the podcast. So definitely, definitely check it out 100%. Um, and just I'm conscious of your time. So uh, I'm just going to ask you some rapid fire questions and then we can finish up the podcast. Awesome. Let's do it. So if there was a billboard and you could display any message of that billboard whatsoever, uh, what message would you put up on that billboard? Oh, uh, this is something I'd probably have a new answer for every day. <laughs> um, uh, God, this seems like a great opportunity that I'm going to miss by saying something that I uh, that I'll think of something better later on. I would say maybe climb the second mountain and that would, it, it, I would need to um, explain that a bit in reference to a book by David Brooks called the second mountain. And essentially the concept is, and this relates to what we discussed earlier, actually, that often in life we have this mountain that we start climbing of things that we want to achieve and that we think will give us happiness or achievement or that are important. And we start climbing this mountain and either we get some of the way or even we get all the way to the top. And and then we realize this isn't what we should have been doing. These aren't the things we should have been striving for. These things don't make us happy. And then we tend to fall down into a almost a valley of despair in between before we start our journey up the second mountain which is the things that actually matter that we mentioned earlier, meaning in our life, connection with others, being of service to other people, um, following things that are true vocation and passion and so on. And that's the, the, the mountain to climb. So maybe that focus on the second mountain. I love that answer. And in the last five years, what is a belief, behavior or habit that has positively influenced your life the most? Hmm. I would say my behavior in in how open I am has probably improved. I've become a much more open person within personal relationships. Um, that has been very beneficial. And I think before for some of the reasons I said right at the outset earlier, we're often insecure to say things because of how other people might interpret them or what people will think of us or um, wanting to come across as more cool or calculated in a certain situation. And I think I've got better at expressing uh, what I'm feeling. Um, and related to that, I've become more aware that we're not, we can't be entirely rational. I always thought I am, I'm like this hyper rational person. And I still hope that I'm quite rational in most situations, but realize that rationality is something that's learned. And by default, we're actually emotional uh, creatures. And so being aware of what emotional state I'm currently in and being able to communicate that, I think that's been something I'm, I've improved on even over the last probably two, two and a half years, I would say. Hmm. If you could master three skills instantly, what would they be? 
um, two that I'm actually going to uh, actually try and dabble in, but I'll just shortcut the process. So uh, probably my my guitar skills, if I would just be like world-class on the guitar right now, that'd be pretty sick. Uh, speak a second language. So I've been trying to speak some German. So if I didn't have to do any of the hard work, that might be kind of cool. Um, and the third skill would be, I'll try and think of something more, uh, more, more useful to the rest of my life, I guess. Um, I would say the skill of, um, not being or of being more resistant to like cultural conditioning, I guess. Uh, because I think most of the time, whether it's stuff we're insecure about or fears that we have, uh, particularly ones that are irrational is because we've been conditioned to think certain things are bad. Um, for example, many people have reached certain time points in their life where they feel, Oh, by this age, I should have these things done. Right. Or, Hey, all my friends are doing this, but I don't. And again, it's just completely arbitrary. They're made up by human culture, right? And, and it's, we're conditioned to, uh, without realizing it, maybe feel negative towards yourself over those uh, or feel insecure about things. And it's very difficult to avoid, even, w- even when you're aware of it. So my skill would be that I'm more resistant to those and uh, just float through life without worrying about things like that. Wow, what an interesting answer. Oh wow, yeah. And um if you could only ten foods um ten whole foods, let's say whole foods, uh what would those foods be for the rest of your life? So you only ha- you only have these ten foods for the rest of your life. Um what would they be? How would you pick these like, foods in terms of nutrition, in terms of like, you know, just bringing the most value? Maybe ten flavors of ice cream, maybe. <laughs> and then, and, but I don't know if I'd last too long. Uh <laughs> Wow. Maybe I don't even eat more than 10 foods anyway. Uh, let's put coffee in there straight away because nothing else will matter about coffee. Um, maybe oats, some Greek yogurt, some whey protein powder. (laughs) Um, I would say, I don't know. Salmon, I like I like a bit of salmon. Probably should have some like rice in there. Uh, what else? I I I actually probably eat less than ten foods every day. <laughs> uh, probably a good bread. It'd be hard to go out bread. Bread bread is a nice food. We, uh, I know you said Whole Foods, but I'm going to throw in ice cream has to be in there. Um, I would say, let's see. Uh, I'll put in eggs. Uh, this is despite all our conversation around veganism. I'm, I'm hitting lots of uh, non-vegan <laughs> items here. Uh, blueberries, let's put them in. How many about now? Eight, seven? I think it's around that, yeah. I lost count. Uh, yeah and then uh what else this is trickier than than it should be 
let's maybe put some fresh fruit, like some some apples. Actually, like an apple and chocolate, just to round it off, <laughs> even out of a. How about that? Well, there we have it. Ten foods to keep you healthy for life. Um, <laughs> um, and then, if you could have dinner with three people, now these people might be alive or dead. Who would they be? Ooh. Um, one would be Arsene Wenger. Uh, I grew up a huge Arsenal fan, and. For most of my life growing up, he was obviously manager for 21 years and um, also a fascinating person. I, I think the way he, he kind of changed football and also like really interested in philosophy and speaks all these different languages. I think that would be cool. I would say Sam Harris, a uh, massive Sam Harris fan. Although I, I kind of feel weird about caught saying a fan of a just a person who commentates and ideas so maybe a fan's not a word i'm a fan of his work let's say um and let's see maybe john frusciante uh i think not only is he my favorite ever guitarist but he's uh had a crazy life and I'm a massive Chili Peppers fan. So that'd be kind of cool. And I think it'd be, it's always interesting to have someone creative that's a musician. So um, yeah, maybe, maybe him. Hmm. And on topic of John, was you that posted the song uh, Ocean by John Butler on Instagram yes. before? Okay. Yeah, one of my favorite songs of all. And he I, could be a, actually, he could have invited him to dinner either. That would have been a good choice. Yeah, but that song, oh my God, I would just listen to that nonstop. It's it's truly amazing. Like just the emotions yeah. in it. Oh, it's it's true. Yeah, I, I regularly listen to that and regularly will purposely go onto YouTube to, to watch uh, that. And there's different live versions of it as well that are really good too. So um, yeah, that, that song... Is, is is a lot going on and it and it means a lot to me so yeah it's uh for anyone that hasn't listened to it or it's watched the video on youtube go and go and check that out yeah and just two more questions for you so what have been the most gifted or recommended books um yeah is there any books that come to mind that you've gifted most to other people um what have I done recently? Um, I can think of the most recent ones. I don't know about the most gifted. Uh, that works. For people who are interested in writing, I recently bought a friend of mine a book called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Um, and yeah, for people who are either creative writers or want to do long form writing or in other endeavors, that might be useful. Um and I would say recently, one of the books I've recommended most has been the one I already said, The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And in addition to that, I've recently really enjoyed um, Range by David Epstein, uh, which is actually interesting. Also feeds back to something we discussed about people that have broad skills as opposed to very narrow fields. So, uh, yeah, th those would be ones for people to check out, I think. Mm. 
And the final question for you is, what is your definition of chasing passion? Um, I would say spending as much time as is practical on something that you derive meaning from. So that doesn't mean all of our day, we still have to do the normal things in life, but whatever you derive the most meaning from being able to divert attention and resources into that each day um, is, is, is what it should be about. And so I think sometimes we, we, particularly when we're doing something creative that we enjoy, let's say our work, we can sometimes always think of it in work terms. But I think there's a fair case to be made that many people um, can derive that passion outside of work and their work is a a thing that allows them to do it. So rather than start their own business, they will go and take maybe a job that they're, they're fine. They don't hate it, but, but like they don't say it's their passion thing, but they're, Family is their passion, and by taking a certain job, they can have a certain work schedule and a certain amount of money that they're making to go and help uh, that passion in a certain area. So, I think, yeah, finding whatever is most meaningfully most meaningful to you, and thinking how can I orientate myself to put more of my time and resources towards this thing. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of like a balance between work and your creativity projects and your passion. I like that approach. Mm-hmm. Just before we finish up, though, where can people find you? Uh, where's a good place to go to follow what you're up to, uh, what you're doing? Where should people go? Sure. So any of the content is at sigmanutrition.com. Uh, the podcast is Sigma Nutrition Radio, available on all podcast apps. And then I'm on social media Instagram is Danny Lennon underscore Sigma and I'm on Twitter nutrition Danny and any of those places are cool great and just before we finish up is there anything else you want to say anything else you want to mention anything at all uh just thank you for everyone who's managed to listen this far hopefully something I said at some point was was useful or thought-provoking and uh yeah thanks for having me on the podcast it was really enjoyed this conversation and thanks for doing it Danny, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the show notes on the website chasingpassionpodcast.com. Just before we finish up, would you consider leaving a short review on Apple Podcast? This will take less than 60 seconds and it'll help me out so much. You can find a link for Apple Podcast in the episode description or just search Chasing Passion on Apple Podcast and you'll find it right there. If you do enjoy the podcast, give it a share. Tell your friends. It will be super, super helpful. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.